This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him, And to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction as we study his Word. Father, we're thankful that we have your Word for, as the psalmist writes, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is given to illuminate our thinking so that in your light we also can see light. It is your word that gives us truth. Not truth as man understands truth, but truth as you have defined it within your very nature and how you have created it within all of your creation. And so, Father, we submit to the teaching of your word and to what you have revealed to us because we know that it is your word. It helps us to understand your thinking, and it is for the purpose of our spiritual growth and edification and that we might live consistent with the way things are and the way you have created them. And we pray that as we study today that we might be encouraged, strengthened, uplifted by your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now, last week, as we continue our study in Colossians, I looked at the first part of this verse, and I titled the message last week, Learning to Love the Battle. And during the week, there was uh, one individual in the congregation who experienced a little uh, unforeseen adversity and it was related to me that the first thing that was flashing through her mind as she went through this was what I, my voice saying, you've got to learn to love the battle. So at least somebody's listening. And it's not always easy to learn to love the battle because our initial reaction whenever we face adversity is to throw up a defense of some sort of resistance to it. We Often this involves various uh, mental attitude or uh, mental attitude sins or sins of the tongue. And we react in anger, we react in resentment, we react in uh, some form of hostility because we don't want to face adversity. We don't really want to uh, enjoy adversity. At, At the core of our being, somehow we think we ought to be able to get through this life without having to face too much difficulty or too much adversity, just somehow coast through things. And yet that is not how God has uh, created things. That is not how uh, 
the system that God has created for us works. And so whenever we find ourselves in that sort of mental state, we have to go through a corrective procedure to make sure we reorient to reality and reorient uh, to God's Word. Now, last time as we began this verse, I focused on the fact that we all go through adversity because we live in the devil's world. And so we have to learn how to have joy and peace in the midst of adversity, which is the focal point this morning. Now, in Colossians 1.24, the Apostle Paul says, uh, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And as I pointed out, when you read this sort of first blush in the English, it seems to say that somehow what Jesus did on the cross was lacking and that somehow Paul saw something in his life that was adding to what Christ did on the cross. That sort of misinterpretation of this this uh, passage is what uh, actually undergirds some of the uh, concepts, some of the false doctrine that is inherent within Roman Catholic theology, the idea that we continue to somehow add to the merit of Christ uh, somehow this this continues to uh, grow, and we can merit his merit by what we go through and how we suffer, and that's not what the Scripture teaches. This is not talking about the suffering of Christ on the cross, and that's clear from the words that are, are used here in relation to suffering. Uh, Paul states his mental attitude is joy when he faces this suffering. And the first thing that he said, the first word that he uses, which I, I set these words up here last week for the word suffering, is the word pathema, which is used of suffering of believers in life. It's also used of the suffering of Christ on the cross. And um, But when Paul uses it here, he's talking about his own personal suffering. I rejoice in my suffering. And I pointed out last time that suffering is what occurs when life doesn't measure up to our expectations to one one degree or another. For many people, they think of suffering only in terms of certain extreme situations. For example, last night when uh, a number of us went over to the First Baptist Church to listen to uh, Louis Zamperini. Here was a man who truly endured physical suffering. He was a man who was a uh, worldwide noted athlete, uh, loved to run, and on a mission in the uh, Army Air Corps in World War II uh, was uh, faced with the fact that they had to ditch the plane and that he was one of only three who survived the crash in the ocean somewhere out in the middle of the Pacific. Nobody knew where they were. And they spent the next, uh, he and two other men spent the next 47 days drifting in a life raft. And they, when they first got in the life raft, they had um, six chocolate bars and six pints of water. And one of the men who did not have the mental fortitude necessary to survive that sort of affliction, panicked in the middle of the night. We found out later he panicked several times. First two or three times he panicked. Zamperini had to punch him out so he would stabilize a little bit. Uh, But the guy woke up in the middle of the night, 
and devoured all six chocolate bars. So that left the men with only six pints of water, which they had to ration. And after 40 days, they um, uh, ran out of water. The man who ate the chocolate, who didn't have the mental attitude uh, necessary to survive the uh, adversity they were facing, was the only one of the three who did not survive. He died uh, before they uh, found land. The last seven days, and I didn't realize you could go seven days, especially after 40 days with only a couple of swallows of water a day, but uh, after uh, 40 days, they then went another seven days without any water. And then there was a squall that came up on the ocean, which dumped a lot of fresh water upon them. And I always thought that was, uh, I never thought about this before, but God has a fabulous desalination process in, in weather that you can get the evaporation of salt water and it precipitates out as fresh water. And so they got a little bit of water. And as they were going through this storm and the swells, they spotted an island, a Kwajalein Island. And when they managed to paddle their way there, they discovered that it was uh, uh, under the control of the Japanese Imperial Army. And so they uh, went from being in the life raft to being in a Japanese prison where they, got, they did get a little more food. They got a rice ball a day and a little bit of dirty water. So they survived there for another uh, 30 or 40 days or so before they were uh, sent to Japan. And then he spent the remainder of the war, about a year and a half, in a Japanese POW camp where he was uh, under uh, the eye of a particularly sadistic Japanese sergeant who uh, tortured and flicked, carried out his sadistic uh, desires upon most of the uh, uh, prisoners. Now, that's serious suffering. But the word suffering doesn't always relate to that sort of extreme circumstance. It can relate to any number of different things in life that don't go quite as we expect them. And often it's the big events like the kind that I just mentioned that we somehow seem to be geared up for, but it's those little things, just like the the bite of a mosquito or a gnat, that, that really get to us. And I don't know about you, but that's that's usually where I have my problems is with those those small minor things that don't go quite right and uh, get me out of fellowship quicker than anything else. But uh, we have all, all these different degrees of, of affliction, of adversity that we face, and that's what Paul talks about here at the beginning. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And that's the Second word, it's actually in the, the box on the lower left, flipsis. This word was never used of the suffering that Christ went through on the cross when he paid the penalty for sin. It is used in a number of passages in relation to the day-to-day adversity, suffering, or sometimes it's tra- translated tribulations that we all go through uh, in life. And I prefer that to translate it uh, adversity because that communicates well. And, and uh, sometimes when we read a word that's translated tribulation, like as it is in Romans chapter 4, uh, then philipsis somehow can be misunderstood to relate to that future event called the Great Tribulation. But this is a, a, a word here for the uh, adversity, the trouble, that we go through on a regular basis. So because this word is used, we know that he's not talking about the soteriological suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, the atoning work on the cross, his redemptive work on the cross. It's talking about 
the rest of his life when he went through untold adversity living in the devil's world, uh, living with a bunch of uh, uh, sinners who were constantly uh, attacking him, assaulting him, disappointing him, and all of the other things that, uh, uh, that uh, sinful mortals do. And yet he uh, handled all of those circumstances by relying upon the same things that we have been given to rely on, and that is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And in that, Jesus Christ set a pattern for us, and he became the model for us on how we, in our humanity, can also surmount and overcome these adversities without succumbing to uh, failure in terms of mental attitude or overt sin. So we can have joy, as I pointed out last time, in our suffering. We can learn to love the battle just for the sake of the battle, because we understand why we are in the battle. And so I pointed out last time a couple of things by way of review that, first of all, there are different levels and qualities of joy and happiness in the Scripture. You have words such as kara, which refers to joy, and we have uh, other words such as uh, agaliasis, which refers to gladness. Sometimes in the way we think about things, we think that, that the words of Scripture ought to be ought to be precise in terms of one kind of joy always described by one word. Kara is used to describe a range of joy. Gladness is a word that we would use and often relate to just uh, the ephemeral happiness that we experience in life when things are going well and we face, uh, uh, we face pleasurable circumstances. And sometimes we wake up and hear good news and we're just ecstatic and happy and other times... Uh, uh, we don't, but this is what gladness refers to. But joy also refers to that, and in fact, Jesus uses it that way in different passages that relates to the fact that we do have a range of, of uh, pleasurable emotion, let's say, happiness, based on circumstance. So there's nothing in and of itself that is wrong with having pleasure or joy or happiness on the basis of of positive circumstances. I mean, that we can't avoid that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus indicated this in John 16, 20, and 22 when he talked about the fact that the disciples would weep and lament at the time of his death, and the world would rejoice. That's joy related to circumstances, that they would be sorrowful, but that there would come a time, he says in verse 22, when they would not have sorrow, but they would rejoice because they would learn of his resurrection. So here he clearly uses this term in, in relation to a mental attitude or emotional state that was related to circumstances, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's the point I want to make is that there is more to happiness or joy than that. So point number two, I pointed out that happiness is often associated with a specific set of pleasurable circumstances which often change. Now, this is important to understand because life is filled with change, and many of us don't like that. There are portions of this country where it is almost proverbial that they don't like change that's embedded within their culture. But I think it's true for many of us that we like things to be pretty stable uh, each day to be what we expect it to be and not to be hit with a lot of things that, uh, that upset, upset our lives. And that often is a cause for a lot of uh, mental uh, instability and emotional unhappiness from people because things don't work out the way they want them to. They have control issues. 
Point number three, to whatever degree our happiness is based on people, emotions, or circumstances, we become dependent on and slaves of those people, emotions, and circumstances. Now, this is an extremely significant principle. What I mean by when I say to whatever degree your happiness is based on people, we often think that if people respond to us the way we wish them to or they act the way we want them to, then we will be happy. But then when they don't react or respond the way we want them to, then we're sad, we're depressed, we're discouraged. And so we're basically saying that my mental state or my emotional state is dependent upon someone else's choices and someone else's behavior. And to the degree that we do that, we enslave ourselves to those people. Now, the second thing example I use here is emotions. And sometimes we have various negative emotions in our lives. And that is just maybe we wake up one day and we're really feeling energetic. We're, we're feeling good. Life is great. We accomplish a lot. The next day we wake up, we just don't feel quite so excited or happy. We just go through these emotional mood swings. Some people have other problems that cause them, but it's normal for uh, most of us to go through days when we feel a little more happy and focused on life. And other days we just have a little case of the blues perhaps, or we're tired, we didn't get enough sleep, we were sick, whatever it might be. Uh, And we have to recognize that our mental attitude cannot be dependent on how we feel each day. Now, that means that ultimately your emotions can't control you. And they can't control you only if you're mentally tough. If you're not mentally tough, then you can let your own emotions dominate your life. And then you can, over time, become enslaved to those emotions. And that can lead to even greater emotional instability, all of which can only be reversed through the use of the scriptures and promises and the spiritual skills. And then circumstances, if things go well, if I have enough money, if uh, I get a promotion, if I do well in my, in my job, if, if uh, I'm successful, uh, many different things that people put their focus on in terms of the details of life as the basis for their happiness. But to the degree that you think life is meaningful and significant and you're happy, uh, if that's based on people, circumstances, or emotions, then you're going to be enslaved to those other things to one degree or another. In contrast to that kind of happiness, the kind of joy that the Scripture promises is a robust joy that is independent of circumstances, emotions, and people. It is a stability, a mental stability that allows you to be sorrowful at something and at the same time still have real, profound, robust joy in your soul. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says that we, at the time of the death of a loved one, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. There's, sometimes Christians get the odd idea that if you're a believer and you're really focused on the Lord, then you're not going to have some of these negative emotions. You're not going to feel sad. You're not going to feel sorrowful. You're not going to grieve. You're not going to uh, have the temptation to be angry or upset or anxious or worried. And those emotions will generate from our own sin nature. 
but it's whether or not we're going to let them dominate our mental attitude and dictate the decisions we make is whether or not we're going to live on the basis of the sin nature or live on the basis of truth. And so we recognize that we are going to grieve. That is a part of our nature. But it's not going to be like those who have no hope. At other times, we'll have circumstances come up, and our initial uh, reaction, the initial option that appears to us, maybe only in terms of a nanosecond, is whether or not we're going to react to this circumstance with anger or, uh, or getting upset in some way or worrying Rather, we, we, in, a, in an instant, we decide, no, I'm going to focus on the Lord. And that doesn't mean that we sin. We, our sin nature say, okay, this is how you handle the problem, is you worry about it, you get angry about it, you get frustrated over it, you, you curse and you utter an, uh, a stream of profanity, which some people think ought to be the, a problem-solving device, but it's only in terms of human viewpoint. So we have to learn to live above the circumstances and not under the circumstances. Now, there are a number of passages in Scripture that address this, and I want to go to John chapter 15, first of all, this morning to look at a one particular passage I mentioned last week, but I want to focus on a little more th- this morning. In John 15, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, and he's addressing his disciples. This is part of what is called the upper room discourse, even though by chapter 15 they have left the upper room and they are walking, Jesus is walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, he is continuing to give them instruction about what is about to happen in the, the basic uh, basic doctrines related to the spiritual life of the coming church age. And he says, these things, referring to all that he has been teaching on this particular night, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain or abide in you and that your joy may be full. So he says, first of all, that he's taught them certain things. So the foundation for having the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about here is a joy that is not based on circumstances. It's not based on people. It's not based on emotion. It's based on understanding truth with a capital T. Absolute truth, understanding reality as God defined it, which we know because it has been taught us by God by the Lord Jesus Christ and through the, and the Holy Spirit through the writings of the apostles and the prophets. So the basis for having this joy is on the word of God. And so first and foremost, if we're going to have this kind of joy, then we need to strengthen our minds with God's word. Now as we look at this, I want to look at a couple of things that are said here and that are also said in the context. First of all, he says, these things I've spoken to you and for two purposes. And the first purpose is expressed in that next purpose clause, that my joy may abide in you. Now, when he says that, he's recognizing that it might not abide in you. And that word that's translated remain here, I've chosen to translate abide because I want to keep it consistent with the translation of this word in the 15th chapter of John. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse, um, beginning in verse uh, 4, he st- starts to talk about abiding. And he says, 
Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. The key to understanding everything that Jesus teaches in this particular section is understanding this concept of abide, which comes from the Greek word meno. So to be consistent, it should always have been translated abide through this section in order that people understand that it's an ongoing uh, concept that it's being explained here. So abiding in Christ is not something related to salvation, as some people believe. It is related to fellowship. It is analogous or it's comparable. It's another way of looking at what Paul talks about as walking by the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse uh, 5, 16. It is comparable to what Paul also refers to as being filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. It is the walk of fellowship with God. When we sin, we quit abiding in Christ. When we confess our sins and we're back in fellowship, then we resume that position of abiding until, again, we sin. So abiding is a term that is related to Fellowship. The passage here is talking about how we grow as believers so that we produce fruit, and it is, so that fruit is rather fruit is produced in our lives. And this is done as we see from Galatians chapter five, ultimately through God the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that Jesus is teaching them is how to remain in fellowship. And if they remain in fellowship, then one of the things, one of the fruits that God the Holy Spirit produces in them is joy. The second reason he gives for having taught them these things is that your joy may be full. So there's two different joys here. There's his joy, which is given to us, which is a joy that never changes, a joy that is immutable because it is the joy that is uh, has a supernatural origin and is not the kind of joy that we can manufacture in our own life apart from God. So he's giving us his joy. So we are able to share in the same level of joy or happiness that the Lord Jesus Christ had that got him through every adversity that he endured in life. And and the reason for this is stated in the last clause that your joy may be full. Now this word that that is translated be full is a Greek word plerao. It's a word that many of us are familiar with. It's the same verb that's used in uh, Ephesians 5, 5.18, for be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is a word that has a number of different applications in Scripture, and one of them is to talk about the fulfillment of prophecy. And that is similar in meaning to how it is used in this particular passage. I point out in the note on the screen that this is an aorist passive subjunctive, and this is the way in which the Greek language functions just to express a purpose for something. It uses a subjunctive mood because if I say I'm doing this so that you can do something, the, the, the actual carrying out of the task is still a potential. It's, not, it's a probability maybe. It's something more probable, but it hasn't actually occurred yet. 
And so you can't use a mood of reality like the indicative mood. You have to have a mood of probability. And so the subjunctive mood is used, and that indicates the fact that for for this to be realized, your volition and my volition has to be engaged. We have to make certain decisions and think and act a certain way in order to realize this joy. Another thing that we learn from this is that joy, the concept of being full or fulfilled, indicates something that is progressive. It's not as if one day as we're applying doctrine that our joy is as rich as it can be. It's not like either we're completely full or not. It is something that is a result and is related to our ongoing spiritual growth and maturity. So that as a young baby believer, you can experience a measure of joy that is produced in you by God the Holy Spirit. But as you grow to maturity, that joy will uh, increase and it will have a greater impact and benefit for you in your spiritual life. When this word is used of prophecy, think about this as an analogy. In the Old Testament, we have different prophecies that are made about the future, about the Messiah. And when these were fulfilled, brought to full realization in history, then the writers use this word plerao. It is that which had potential of happening has now fully come to pass. That's the same idea with regard to joy in our lives. It is that which is a potential for every Christian to have, but it only comes to full realization under certain circumstances and uh, if we apply the principles that the Word of God has. In fact, as I was looking up the word fulfilled in English this morning, just to get a better understanding of that word, after I had already um, come to the, some of these conclusions, it, I was confirmed in my thinking by the very first meaning listed in the Oxford English Dictionary for fulfill. It states to achieve or realize something desired, promised, or predicted, to fulfill oneself or to gain happiness or satisfaction by fully achieving one's potential. So every one of us has the potential of having and experiencing the full joy that the Lord Jesus Christ had, but this comes only as a result of our application of doctrine when we get in those test situations and circumstances when we can either choose to try to handle it on our own through our own emotional reaction and um, uh, depending on our own strength and power, or we can depend on the Lord's power. This is a kind of joy that is distinct from anything that can be produced in just our normal human life. This is seen from passages such as Galatians 5, 16, and 22 and 23, where Paul gives the command in verse 16 to walk by means of the Spirit, and then in 5:22, six verses later, he gives the fruit or the production of the Spirit when we walk by the Spirit. And notice the first three things mentioned as being produced by the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. And there's an important connection, especially between joy and peace. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Now, this concept of bearing fruit is at the core of our passage in John 15. 
Jesus begins the, the, the discourse here by saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He's setting up an analogy that would be obvious to anyone in the ancient world who knew anything about uh, viticulture. He's the vine, the grapevine, yet he is the father as the sovereign who is the one who oversees all of the uh, uh, care of the vineyard and taking care of the vine. Now, Jesus then says, every branch in me. Now, this phrase in me, as it's used by John, is not talking about the Pauline concept of being in Christ, which is positional, but it is a phrase that is used in John to refer to fellowship, to close association with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about those, he's not talking about being a believer here, he's talking about being a believer who is in fellowship. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now the word translated taking away is a Greek word, iro, and there's a play on words here because the word for taking away, iro, is the root of the word for pruning in the next line, which is kathairo, which is related to cleansing or purification. The, in, in the pro, uh, process of, of viticulture in the ancient world, and we have descriptions of this from, from Philo, so we're on fairly certain ground, ground as to how this was done, that when a vine was growing in its early, early stages, and when it was young, as, as, as shoots would come out from that, from that grapevine, then it wasn't that the, uh, that the vine dresser would come along and cut them off or take them away, which is how this word is translated. But the word iro was also used there that they would be lifted up. He would uh, take those new shoots that had not yet borne fruit because they're too young, and he would tie them up to the trestles so that they could get... Uh, better sunlight and better air, and thus in the next season as they had grown and as that new vine had, had, had thickened, it would then produce fruit in the next year. This is comparable to a young baby believer who has not yet learned enough of the Word of God and spent enough time uh, walking by the Spirit to have any fruit produced in his life. If any of you have ever tried to grow anything, tried to grow tomato plants, uh, try to uh, grow any kind of uh, vegetable plant, you know that just because you've planted the seed and just because the shoots have come out and it's growing, it doesn't begin to bear fruit for maybe 90 days or 120 days. It takes time for that plant to grow and mature before it can produce fruit. Fruit is not something that is grown. And often in uh, how this passage is handled by many people, they confuse growth with fruit. Fruit is the result of a process of, of growth. An oak tree doesn't produce acorns, I believe, for about 75 years. So some plants take many, many years before they can produce fruit. So fruit isn't to be equated with the idea of just spiritual growth. It is the result of a lot of spiritual growth. So Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. That's one kind of uh, believer. And then he speaks of a second kind and says every branch, uh, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. 
Now, this is not a negative divine discipline because positive things are happening here. He's walking by the Spirit and bearing fruit. So the pruning here isn't discipline. The pruning here is as the Father comes along and prunes things out of our life that are distractions that prevent us from bearing more fruit. And so in the uh, in the analog here, as the vine dressers in the ancient world would examine the vines, they would see that that little suckers would be coming out of the uh, base of the vine that would pull away nutrients from your main branches that were to be bearing fruit, and so these would be taken away so that energy wouldn't uh, energy and n- nutrients would not go uh, into uh, into areas of distraction or secondary branches that would not bear fruit. And so you have young believers here that don't bear fruit that are lifted up so that they can bear fruit later on. This is analogous to encouragement of young believers so that in the future they can bear fruit. And then those that are maturing that will bear more fruit if certain distractions are taken out of their life. Verse 3, Jesus addresses them and says, you are already clean. This is the word katharizo, uh, which indicates that they're already believers. They've already been cleansed positionally by virtue of their faith in Christ. And he says, You've all, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In other words, because they have responded to the message of the gospel, they're already saved. He had made this point just a few hours earlier when they all sat down together to observe the Lord's table. Uh, in John chapter 13, he said, all of you are clean except for one of you. And that was a reference to uh, Judas, who was still there, who he said was uh, possessed or inhabited and dwelt by uh, Satan, and so uh, they were all saved. Once Satan, I mean, once uh, uh, Judas was removed, then he was left with eleven disciples who were all believers. So he reminds them again, "You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you." And then he gives the command in verse four: "Abide in me, and I in you." And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so the point is that the fruit that is born in our life is not a fruit that we can generate on our own. Uh, It is a supernaturally produced fruit that comes only through abiding in Christ or walking by the Holy Spirit. So then, skipping down to keep our focus here in verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, so that that's still talking about fellowship and the application of of God's word and and the teaching of, of our Lord. He says, if my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So that relates to prayer. And then in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, when I've taught in the past related to how to handle adversity and the spiritual skills that God has given us, the first spiritual skill that we've taught is confession of sin. That if we're not, if we haven't been cleansed of sin, we're not in right relationship to God or God the Holy Spirit, and we're out of fellowship, and when we're out of fellowship, all we can do is live on the basis of our sin nature. It has no eternal value and no 
uh, etern- no spiritual problem-solving efficacy whatsoever. Uh, we may figure out some techniques to get around whatever the problem is, but it has no real enduring spiritual value. And uh, we have, so the first thing is we have to recover from any sin. Maybe your instant response was something that was uh, generated by your sin nature, and then within about 30 seconds you decide, okay, I better uh, get back in fellowship and reorient to the plan of God here. And so you confess your sin. That is the recovery that is talked about that is necessary in this passage in order to continue to abide in Christ or to remain in Christ. The second problem-solving device or spiritual skill that I talk about is walking by the Spirit. And that's the reference in Galatians chapter 5, that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. We continue. Getting into fellowship is just a status shift. It doesn't get us anywhere. It just puts us from a position where we're dependent on our own resources to where we can be dependent upon God's resources and we're in right relationship with him. Now we have to move forward. We have to start taking uh, steps, step-by-step, step-by-step obedience to God's word and the Holy Spirit as we grow and mature and as we handle the problem, whatever it is, through various other problem-solving uh, skills that God has given us. And so when we look at uh, John fifteen seven, we realize the uh, next category of problem-solving skills that we focus on, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, faith rest drill, that these are all based on understanding what God has revealed to us, the promises that he has given to us, and orienting our thinking to the reality of God's word. So this is why Jesus emphasizes here abiding in him, that's ongoing fellowship, walking by the Spirit, and then letting his words abide in us where we depend upon them in the faith rest drill and we are obedient to him. Uh, so John 15:10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You'll stay in fellowship just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide uh, in his love. So we see that as we go through this process that we have to know certain things in order to have this mental attitude in order to make it through, uh, make it through life. And indeed it is a, an important a mental attitude is the key uh, to this. We see this again in the uh, next set of verses. You don't need to turn there right now. We're just, I'm just going to hit it. Uh, tangentially here, and that's in James 1, 2 through 4. James gives a command to count it all joy. You can't command an emotion. You can only command a mental attitude. And so he's not talking about a mental attitude of joy here. He's talking, I mean, he's not talking about an emotion of joy here. He's talking about a mental attitude of joy. And the reason that we're able to count it joy is because of that uh, verb that's used at the beginning of the next verse. It's usually translated as simply a simple participle, uh, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but it really has the nuance of cause. We're able to count it joy because we know something. Again, it comes back to understanding God's word and understanding the nature of reality and how God has structured things. So if we understand that there is a reason and a purpose to whatever it is that we're going through, then we can... On that basis, focus on the right thing and remain in fellowship and grow through the process. 
as we look at this, uh, we also see that there's a relationship between joy and peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, My peace I leave with you, uh, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So we not only have the joy, his joy given to us, but his peace. And these are related because peace has to do with an inner contentment or tranquility which is related to this mental attitude of joy. It also involves a stability of, of our mind and our thinking in terms of contentment and tranquility. John 16:33, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, once again dealing with the, the panorama of doctrines that he's taught in the upper room and following. He said, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have, there's that word again, thlipsis, you will have adversity. But be of good cheer, I have overcome, I have overcome the world. Now how is it that we're able to handle all of this? Well, we do so relying upon the word through the faith rest drill, through trusting in God, putting our faith and trust in Him. One of the favorite promises that I have is uh, in Isaiah 26, verse 3 and 4. There we read, Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. I think the New King James and the Old King James translation is much superior. At least the rhythm of the verbiage is far superior to that of the that of the um, of the New American Standard. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. At the beginning, you have this emphasis on the mentality. And it's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's built off of the verb yatser, which is used to refer to forming something as a potter would form the clay. But it is applied to the mind having to, to form certain, certain plans and purposes. So it emphasizes a certain mental focus, a mental state. So it, would emphasize, it emphasizes something that is formed in the mind. So again, it comes back to a mental focus, a mental toughness in order to discipline ourselves to respond the way that we should respond and not just give in to the uh, flow of the sin nature. And the word stayed is a translation of the Hebrew word samach, which means to lean upon something for support, that we're relying or depending upon it. Second Kings 18.21, uh, Hezekiah was warned not to lean or depend upon Egypt for aid. He was to instead lean upon Yahweh and to trust in him. And then the word for trust in both verse 3 and verse 4 is the Hebrew word batach, meaning to uh, have a confidence in something and to rely on it. We have to rely upon God. Now, as we look at this verse in the English, trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. may surprise you to know that there's no word for strength here in the Hebrew. The word is Tzor, which means rock, and rocks, a, the rock of, in relation to God is often used as a metaphor for strength, so literally it's the Lord Jehovah is an everlasting rock. 
He is that fortress, that mighty fortress we sang of earlier. He is the rock of our salvation. He is our our fortification. So the question then is, how do we develop this kind of mental attitude? Well, last night when we were at the uh, event with uh, Louis Zamperini speaking at the at the part where he was being interviewed, one of the questions that he was asked was that he had uh, taken some issue with the fact that Tom, Tom Brokaw had referred to the uh, World War II generation as the greatest generation, and he didn't think that it should have been called the greatest generation, uh, not for reasons some people think, but because he just didn't think the word great communicated anything. It's a rather empty word, and it doesn't really mean a whole lot, doesn't communicate a whole lot. And he thought that the word that, that should have been used was the word hardy. It was the hardiest generation. Now, the word hardy means to be strong, to be robust, as well as to be cheerful. I think that's a great word to describe the mental attitude of a believer. We should be spiritually hardy. Now, when he was explaining his views last night, he said that one of the reasons that the, uh, this generation, his generation, was hardy was because the parents still spanked their kids. He added appropriately that uh, the failure of that generation was that they had uh, listened to uh, Benjamin Spock and given up on corporal punishment for their children. Instead of giving up on it, they should have learned how to appropriately and properly uh, discipline children Scripture teaches that if you spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. It's in Proverbs. It's a God-given principle. And, um, and in order to fulfill that, though, that you have to have a mental attitude of objectivity. You can't be uh, disciplining your children out of anger, out of some sort of personal resentment or disappointment. Uh, it needs to be done the right and appropriate way because this instills uh, the concept of negative consequences for bad decisions into children also teaches them to endure pain. He went on to say that uh, they had also learned self-control in the, depression, in the Great Depression, and they learned how to do without things so that if they needed something uh, mechanically, for example, those on the farm, if they couldn't afford to buy something, they had to learn how to make it themselves or do a workaround. They learned how to how to not be disappointed in the accomplishment of a task, but how to persevere and to be creative and innovative and come up with a uh, an appropriate solution to the problem. Third, he said, they learned how to make do with whatever they had, and they learned how to persevere in times of difficulty. So this developed a mental toughness, and that they this mental toughness they developed wouldn't allow them to easily quit or to give up, and that they learned that if you are going to grow and accomplish anything in life, then you have to learn how to overcome the obstacles that life throws at you without letting, letting it roll over you. Now, these are true principles, and anyone can apply them to a certain degree, but Scripture clearly teaches that this is how we grow as believers. We have to develop mental toughness. Now, if that, that generation was called the hardy generation, so I thought about it this morning, I would characterize the present generation as the pansy generation, the generation of mental wimps. Uh, we've become mentally lazy. Uh, the, uh, unfortunately, the there were great successes in the World War II generation. They passed the, the test of, of adversity, but they failed the test of prosperity because when they came out of 
World War II and entered into one of the greatest periods of prosperity the world has ever known, they spoiled their children rather than training their children. And so the children that they produced, known as the baby boomers, uh, became characterized by narcissism. Christopher Lash wrote a book in the 80s called The Narcissist Generation, which adequately describes the self-absorption of the baby boomers. But if the baby boomers were narcissists, then the generation of today are the uber-narcissists. And they have majored in self-absorption. And when we are focused on self-absorption, then all we can focus on when we face challenges or problems is how it disappoints us, hurts us, how it, how somehow we're not going to get what we want. And so we just sit around and whine and cry about it. And it also develops a mental attitude of dependency because you expect somebody else then to meet your needs because you don't have the mental toughness to look at the situation and the circumstance and apply the right principles and surmount or overcome that difficulty. Instead, you want somebody else to do it for you. And we have uh, made the federal government complicit in this through all of these federal programs that have come along since the Great Depression because we didn't want people to have to go through that sort of pain and anxiety and difficulty again. Because And all that's grounded on a principle that somehow we can exclude suffering and adversity from the day-to-day experiences of life. And yet we can't do that. And one of the responsibilities of parents is to instill this kind of training in, in your children so that they can be productive adults and face and handle whatever life throws at them. Now, the Word of God makes it very clear that if we're going to have joy and happiness and stability in the midst of suffering, then we do it because we know certain things. And that means you have to be a student of the Word of God. Not only do you have to be a student of it, we have to be reminded of it over and over and over again because it's easy for us to forget, but we have to put it into practice. We have to make it a part of our life through our own day-to-day decisions that when we face all of the minor little difficulties, obstacles, and opposition in life, that we instantly respond by claiming promises, by prayer, by putting it in the Lord's hands, and that in that way we train ourselves so that when the more difficult things come up, then we can, that will be our default position. And what happens so often is if you don't learn to pass the small tests by handling it with the word, then when more difficult tests come, you haven't prepared yourself and you just set yourself up uh, for spiritual failure. But the hope that we have from Scripture is clear. And this is what the Apostle Paul develops in Romans chapter 5, and he focuses on the fact that we can have real hope even in the midst of tribulation, because we understand that adversity produces hope. This is the flow of Romans 5, 1 through 5, which is where we'll begin next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word today, to be reminded that that you are in control and there are realities about life that we face every day because we live in a fallen world. We live in the devil's world, and things do not go as planned, things do not go as we wish, and that there is opposition. But the way in which we can be stable beyond just the normal processes of life that are available to all is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to a supernatural joy and peace and calm that enables us to face and handle, surmount, 
the most difficult of circumstances as we rely upon you and we can even though we face those those difficulties those adversities we can have real joy real peace real stability because that is produced in us through God the Holy Spirit Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that God in his grace provided a perfect solution, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we can have eternal life. The greatest problem we'll ever face has been met and solved by God. Now, Father, we pray that as we go about our life today that you will remind us of what we have studied this morning, that we might have our mental attitude focused upon your word, and that we might discipline ourselves as we walk by the Spirit and abide in Christ, that we might focus on not the circumstances, but on you who are the strength that gets us through the circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.